What a wonderful day in the house of the Lord. Let let me pray for us as we open up his word. How Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your determination. I thank you for your promises that no one can snatch us out of the hands of Jesus. That we belong to you and that we know you and you know us and you call us by name and we follow your voice. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, as we see how you are the gate and the good shepherd, can you stir in our hearts a deeper affection for you? Can you help us to look at you and just be in awe and amazement and wonder in you? Can you convict us of our sins? And those who are rebelling against you, can you draw them in? Can you open up their eyes to your truth? And Lord, I pray that as we open up this word, your word, can you help us to understand? Can you help us to see? Can you help us to hear? Can you help us to respond? So come, Lord, and speak to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 10 as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And what we have to understand and the reason I kind of open up with why we're studying the Gospel of John and the purpose of the Gospel of John is to remind you because so many times we kind of get bogged down in the details of the text that we forget the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of why John wrote the book of, of John, the Gospel of according to John, is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. And his purpose is to invite us in, his readers, whoever's reading it, to believe in the name of Jesus so that we may have life. Now, last week we saw the miracle of the man who was born blind, Jesus healed him, and when this man was brought to the religious authorities, all of it was met with skepticism. And in their investigation of this miracle, they were divided in their opinions over Jesus. Some thought that Jesus was from God. Others thought that Jesus was a sinner. And yet what we see was as this investigation continued, the eyes of the man who was born blind, the eyes of the man who was healed, he began to see more clearly who Jesus is while the religious authorities, their eyes were slowly but surely closing as they were filled with a prideful mist. And at the end of their investigation, they belittled the healed man and they kicked him out. And what we saw was Jesus took the initiative and found him and received him. And then when Jesus revealed himself to this man as the son of man, he believed he worshiped Jesus as Lord. Now, the reason why I'm doing this recap, again, is not just to to inform you of what we talked about last week, but also to show you the impact that last week has on today. 
because here's what was happening as we get to chapter 10. Immediately after the man was healed from his blindness and he was kicked out, out by the religious leaders, Jesus now began to speak of the true shepherd of Israel. And really what he's going to do is in this imagery, he is going to compare the true shepherd of Israel with the thieves and the robbers and the hired hands. And at the end, Jesus is going to, be, to claim the good shepherd, the true shepherd of Israel that the prophet Ezekiel spoke about. So in our text, let's look at the imagery and let's see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the true shepherd of Israel that the people longed for. John chapter 10 verse 1 says this, Truly I tell you, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Now, the metaphor that Jesus was using is based on the first century of sheep farming. Now, in the first century of sheep farming, the sheep are in a communal sheep pen, which means several families will keep their sheep in the same pen and they would hire a doorkeeper or a guard to guard the sheep by the gate. And obviously, those who were authorized, those who the sheep belong, the guard keeper or the gatekeeper would recognize them and provide them access into the sheep pen. But those who were unauthorized, those who the sheep did not belong to and they were interested in stealing the sheep or ravaging or wounding the sheep, they would not go through the gate, but rather they would go in some other way. And Jesus calls them what? He calls them thieves and robbers. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, who are these thieves and these robbers? And I really think in order for us to better understand this metaphor and to be able to answer who the thieves and the robbers are, we have to look at Scripture and what does Scripture say? And so there's a passage that I want you to turn to um, if you have your Bibles. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. And as you're turning to Ezekiel chapter 34, this is really going to be very helpful in order for us to understand John chapter 10. And since I'm only going to read snippets out of this chapter, your homework for this afternoon or throughout the week as you're, as you're preparing for engaging the discussion and life group, I would highly recommend you read the entire chapter of Ezekiel 34. So let's look at Ezekiel 34 verse 2 to 4. says this this is what the lord god says woe shepherds of israel who've been feeding themselves should the shepherds not feed the flock you eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool you slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock 
Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. Nor have you searched for the lost, but with force and with violence, you have dominated them. They scattered for a lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every animal of the field and scattered. Now, in the passage of Ezekiel, who are the evil shepherds? They are the the leaders, the religious leaders, the priests, the prophets, the kings. And Ezekiel is warning them through the word of the Lord saying, you are evil, you are not doing your job. And what we find out in Ezekiel is they were selfish. They cared more about themselves than actually about the sheep. They had twisted God's law to serve their own interest. Now, as you think about Ezekiel 34, think about John here. What do we here last week in John chapter 9. What did they do? When somebody was healed, they brought them to their religious leaders. Here's a man who was born blind. The Lord opened up his eyes. And how did they treat him? They belittled him. They kicked him out. His very own parents was too afraid to testify that Jesus healed him and that Jesus is from God because if they did, they were afraid of being kicked out. Do you see the similarities between the, 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 the bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34 and these religious leaders in John chapter 9? So in other words, basically putting two and two together, who are the thieves? Who are the robbers? It's the religious leaders. And what Jesus is doing is, what he's trying to do is he is contrasting himself, the good shepherd, between these thieves and these robbers and these wicked religious leaders. And Jesus says, these thieves and these robbers, they don't go through the gate, but they climb the fence. Why? Because they're not authorized. Their main purpose is to destroy and to ravish and to wound the sheep but the shepherd he goes to the gate and who opens it for him the gatekeeper opens up the gate for the shepherd because the shepherd has access because his sheep is in this communal fold the gatekeeper recognizes him and then as the gatekeeper opens up the shepherd goes to his sheep and then he calls them they listen to his voice and the fact that the shepherd would call his own means there are many sheep from different shepherds that's in this communal pen and what we have to understand is again Jesus is using an imagery that his audience was familiar with it's based on first century shepherding and in the ancient near east the way that shepherds would call their sheep the way that shepherds would even lead their sheep is they train their sheep by standing around in this communal pen and they would create a peculiar call that only their sheep would be able to recognize and so they would train them so that only when they have this peculiar peculiar call the shepherd's sheep would listen and follow but if another shepherd had to come in and use another call they would ignore it because that is not their shepherd 
But this shepherd that Jesus is talking about, he doesn't have a peculiar call. But what does he do? What is his calling? He calls them by name. Now think about this for a moment. If the shepherd calls his sheep by name, and the sheep recognize because they know this is their shepherd by the shepherd's voice, what does that indicate for us? That indicates that even before the calling, that sheep belongs to the shepherd. And unlike Western shepherds who would drive the sheep from, from behind and would use sheep dog, dogs to keep the, the, the sheep within a, a little corral together so that no one wanders off, not in the Eastern world, they would actually lead their sheep from the front and constantly call them as the sheep would follow. And Jesus tells us that this shepherd who walks into this communal sheep pen because the gatekeeper recognizes it, opens for him he calls them my name which means they already belong to him he leads them out of this communal sheep pen which means there are sheep that are still in there that does not belong to the shepherd and how does he lead them not from behind driving them but in front as he is constantly calling them and they recognize his voice and they follow him and again this is a metaphor that jesus is using and those that the metaphor that Jesus was using, it tells us in verse 6 that the people did not understand what in the world Jesus was talking about. So as we move on to chapter 7, the shepherd that Jesus is talking about sounds like a good shepherd. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, and I know for some of you, you all know this, that who, the, what the answer to the question is, but kind of bear with me here. Let's, let's, let's pretend we don't know. Let's read this text through fresh eyes. The question is, who is this wonderful shepherd that it doesn't just have a peculiar call, but rather knows his sheep so much that he calls them by name and his sheep actually respond to their name because they know his voice and they will follow him and they won't follow strangers. Let's look at verse 7 as Jesus continues now to expand and also explain this metaphor. Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but their sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have, so come, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. So, so let's stop here and think about this. Jesus just introduced a metaphor for us, and now he's going to expand and explain this metaphor. But here's a part that's a little confusing for me, and maybe you picked it up. In the previous verses, we read that the shepherd enters through the gate, and there's a kind of gatekeeper that recognizes the shepherd and say, yes, welcome back. Here's your sheep. And he would walk in through the gate. But now, in Jesus' explanation and expansion of this metaphor, 
He's describing himself as the gate. So how can Jesus be, because we already thought, well, he's definitely the shepherd. How can he be the shepherd and the gate all at once? And what we have to understand is, what is Jesus trying to do? He's drawing a contrast between the thieves and the robbers, the religious leaders, and eventually himself as being the good shepherd. We've already heard what are the thieves and the robbers do, the religious leaders. They are selfish. They only think about themselves. They come in to ravish the flock. They use the flock for their own personal gain. And when Jesus says that he is different than them, he describes himself as the gate. Now, before we will expand on this, think about what's the purpose of a gate? A gate provides security. And what else? And also access. And what Jesus is saying by him describing himself as the gate, he is saying, I am different than these thieves and these robbers. I provide security and I provide access. Now, before we go on, I think it's helpful for us to go back to Ezekiel 34. Because the, 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 the thieves and the robbers They are, in a sense, promising people freedom and security, but instead they're leading them into suffering and slavery. And Jesus in verse 8 says that the real sheep, those who belong to him, did not listen and did not follow. So Ezekiel 34, verse 11 to 16 says this. For the Lord God says this, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd cares for his flock on a day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing place will be on the mountain high of Israel. There they will lie down in a good grazing place and feed in rich pastures on the mountain of Israel. I myself will feed my flock and I myself will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will eliminate. I will feed them with judgment. And then verse 23, so, in, so we, what we read in Ezekiel, who's the shepherd? God is. But now in verse 23, this is why you have to read the entire passage, but we don't have time. As verse 23 says, Then I will appoint over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. So in a sense, we're kind of getting the same imagery. Who can be God, who is their very own shepherd and feed them, and the servant of David at the same time? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. 
And yet he's from the line of David. Fully God, fully man, the son of man that represents both God and man as the mediator. And what Jesus is doing really in his imagery, and even though the people are not understanding it, Jesus is pointing to the promises of God of being their shepherd, the one that the people long for. And he says, I am the one. But he starts off with saying this, if you're taking notes, that I am the gate of the sheep. In other words, he is the one that provides security and provides access but here's the question we have to ask ourselves we know what he is providing security for but what is he giving us access to he's giving us access to to god the father he's giving us access to life life that can only be found in him in other words, if you, if you read verses 9 and verses 10 again, it says, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. If Jesus is saying that he is the gate to salvation and life, what is he declaring about himself? that salvation can be found nowhere else other than in Jesus. It's very reminiscent of John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through the Son. And by Him being the gate, He is saying, I am the only one that can provide security. I am the only one that can provide access for you and and me my sheep can enter through this gate and can go in and go out and find pastures he will shower them with tender care and protection his own will be safe and protected by them and jesus the people will find rest for their souls and it will be an overflowing of provision because in him fear flees and what is that provision not stuff, but him. Because he is the only one that satisfies. He is the only one that fulfills. He is the only one worth feasting on that will nourish our souls. And so the very first thing that Jesus does in comparing himself to the thieves and the robbers is they promise all these kinds of things, but they cannot deliver. I am the gate, which means I am the only one that can deliver true security and true access to God. And as Jesus depicts himself as the gate for the sheep, now he's going to portray himself as the good shepherd. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's just stop here and just think about this. In this metaphor, a good shepherd is normally willing to risk his life for the sheep, perhaps fighting off a predator. But think about this. The death of a shepherd is really uncommon, is really rare, because what happens if the shepherd dies? 
the sheep now are exposed to predators. However, what Jesus is saying, and notice the strong language here. He is not saying, I am the good shepherd and I am willing to lay down my life for them. No, what does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in the strong language, now he's pointing beyond the metaphor, but rather he's pointing to himself. And so if you're taking notes, Jesus is not only claiming to be the gate that provides security and access, but now he claims to be the good shepherd. And why is he a good shepherd? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. He's not merely risking his life. He's not merely willing to fight off predators to protect the sheep. But rather what we read is that he will lay down his life for the sheep. And we will find out that this is all in line with the Father's plan and the Father's will. In other words, what he is saying is far from that being accidental. Jesus' death is what precisely qualifies him to be the good shepherd. And by his death, he is not exposing the flock to further ruin and dangers, but by his death, he draws them in. Like, just think about this truth here, and I don't, I don't want to just rush past it. The good shepherd is not willing to die for you. He lays down his life for you. And by his death, that qualifies him as the good shepherd. He does not leave you exposed to further dangers, but rather by his death, he brings you in. Why is Jesus better than any other shepherd? Look at verse 12. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. And this happens because he is a hired hand and he doesn't really care about the sheep. Now, we've already established in the metaphor that the thieves and the robbers are wicked, but not really about the hired hands. I wouldn't call the hired hands wicked in a sense. He's just not committed to the well-being of the sheep. Why? Because he's more committed to the well-being of himself. And when danger comes, what does he do? He runs away. Because he cares about his own well-being. Because that sheep is not his own. Now, now again, it's uncertain of, in this metaphor, we've already established that the thieves and the robbers are the religious leaders. But we don't know who the hired hands are. But maybe the reason why Jesus is bringing it up was not to tell us who they are, but rather to emphasize the characteristics of the good shepherd. Because the good shepherd is good because he lays down his life for the sheep, which now leads us to the second point of why this good shepherd is so good. Look, look at verse 14. says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
So if you're taking notes, the second reason why Jesus is the good shepherd, not only because he lays down his life for the sheep, but the second reason is because he knows his own and his own knows him. He knows his own and his own knows him. Think about this intimate knowledge here. This, this knowledge is not intellectual. This knowledge is experiential. And this knowledge is even compared to the knowledge between the Father and the Son. And it's because of this mutual knowledge of why the sheep follow the shepherd and the shepherd alone. The intimacy of the sheep and the shepherd is mirrored in the intimacy between the father and the son. The intimacy of the shepherd and the sheep is grounded upon the intimacy between the father and the son. Like, I want you to think about this. We know him, he he knows us. Because really what it's talking about in the simplest terms is our union with Christ. We are united. In other words, Christ is in us and we are in Christ. We are one with Jesus Christ. And not to get too complicated because I know kids are here, but where else do we see that union? In the Trinity. Okay? So what do we affirm about the Trinity? That God is one, but he reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The three-in-one God, they are united in essence, in nature, in attributes. But yet they also are distinct in person and role. We see that union between the Father and the Son. And what Jesus is describing is just that union between the Father and the Son exists. That union between the shepherd and the sheep exists. So how do you know that you will never be snatched out? That your shepherd will never leave you? That the shepherd will never abandon you and say, you know what, this sheep has messed up too much. I'm done with the sheep. The reason how you know is because the shepherd is united to the sheep to abandon the sheep is to abandon himself the reason why he will never abandon you is not because you're that awesome not because he loves you that much is because he cannot abandon himself let's move on hopefully that wasn't too difficult verse 16 we're almost done here kids are doing great verse 16 but i have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what we have to understand is about this other sheep. This is also tied to the previous verses. And in the previous verses, we've learned that Jesus is the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. Also for this other sheep he's talking about. And he also, he knows this other sheep and the other sheep know him. But what we have to understand is who are these other sheep? When we go back to verses 1 and 5, 
The first metaphor that Jesus was, was talking about, there was a communal pen with sheep in it. The shepherd would walk out into to the gate. The gatekeeper would open up. The shepherd would call his sheep by name. And those who recognize his voice because they know him and the shepherd knows them would do what? They would walk out of the communal sheep pen and they would follow the shepherd and the shepherd would lead them by his voice. Were there still sheep left in that communal pen? Yes. Why? Because they did not belong to the shepherd. In other words, what that metaphor is referring to is that in this communal pen, they were unbelievers. These were the Jews. And why Jesus was leading them out of this communal pen, he was leading them to a new pasture. And as he's leading them, what is he doing? He's also going to call other sheep from another flock to be what? To be one sheep under one shepherd, grazing in his pasture, following his lead. And that's referred to as the Gentiles. But where does salvation begin? begins among the Jews, and then it spreads out from among the Gentiles. Let's keep on seeing this relationship between the Father and the Son. Verse 17 says, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up. I have received this command from my Father. Now, it almost seems like Jesus is kind of done with this metaphor. And since he's already kind of alluded to the relationship that the sheep has with the shepherd, to the Father and the Son, now he expands on this complexity of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And what we have to understand is, it's not that the Father withholds his love from the Son until his Son is willing to obey and to die on the cross. But rather, the love of the Father for the Son is is eternally linked with this unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, which is an utter dependence on the Father that culminates in Jesus' greatest act of obedience, death on the cross, the willingness to bear the shame, rejection, guilt, and sins of this world that's reserved for the Lamb of God. But notice what Jesus says. Is his life taken away from him? No. What does he do with his life? He lays down his life. In other words, as he lays down his life, is that the end of him? No. He lays it down to do what with it? To pick it up again. Which means what we have to understand is that Jesus' sacrificial death of laying down his life was not an end in itself, but rather, and the resurrection wasn't an afterthought, but rather his death of him laying down his life was with the resurrection in view. Laying it down and picking it back up again. And what verse 18 shows us, look at verse 18 again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. In other words, what he is saying is, this is not some accident that, that, that was uh, 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 
taken up, executed by misguided men and taking his life. But rather, he willingly lays it down. And he has the authority to do it. And he has the authority to pick it back up again. And all of that was the plan from the very beginning between the Father and the Son. And look at how the people responded. Verse 19, again, the Jews were divided because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon and he's crazy. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying these aren't the words of someone who is demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So, so let's stop here and just think a little bit and then draw some application for us. Jesus is comparing himself to the false shepherds, the thieves and the robbers that really don't care about the people, that really care about themselves. They give you all of these, em- these empty promises, provision, security, freedom. And what do we always end up with? Slavery, suffering, and empty. But Jesus says, I'm not like that because I am the gate of the sheep. I provide security. I provide access. Access to God, access to salvation, access to life, access to green pastures. You know why you can trust me as the gate? Because I'm also the good shepherd. The good shepherd that's not willing to die, but lays down his life for the sheep. And by laying down his life for the sheep, he draws his sheep in. And not only does he just lay down his life for the sheep, but he's also the good shepherd because of this intimate relationship he has with the sheep. His sheep knows him, and he knows his sheep. He calls them by voice. They, recognize, they call him by name. They recognize his voice, and they follow him. Think about the implications for us as the believer. Think about the comfort that we can find and the joy and the hope that we have. How do we know that the shepherd will follow through on his promises? Because he's already laid down his life. To abandon you is to abandon himself because he is united with you. He is in you and you are in him. And what that should do is that should stir us great joy that we have such a good shepherd that calls us, that leads us, that doesn't say, you know what, you've wandered way too many times, I'm done with you. And later on next week, we're going to see no one can snatch the sheep out of the shepherd's hand. Why? Because the shepherd is that good and determined to keep you. Now, I want to end with, with, with this Psalm 23. Turn, turn to Psalm 23 for me. Psalm 
Don't worry, that's not another passage I'm preaching on. I'm just going to read it over you. And we're going to get to the table. Let me read it. And I want you to think, the Lord, think about Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life and who knows you and you know him. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. What do I have? I have the shepherd. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths. For whose name's sake? For his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Why do I not have to fear? Because he's with me. The sheep knows me and I know the sheep. He is with you and he will never abandon you for his own sake because to do it would mean to abandon himself. That is impossible. But here's my favorite part. And this is the part, hopefully you'll see the relevance here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. You know what I'm going to get to, right? Think about this imagery. The Lord prepares a table in the presence of his enemies. I don't think preparing a table in the midst of war is appropriate. Unless you're sovereign. What does he do? He prepares a table in the midst of our enemies. Even if you think about, I don't know if it was the communion table or the Passover festival or whatever they had in view or the great wedding feast, but, but let's say hypothetically, and I could be wrong, a table that he is preparing. What did he prepare for us this morning? A table. How did he prepare it for us? By dying on the cross for our sins and inviting us in. And why are we invited? Not because we're great, not because we're awesome or we're good people, but because what he has done on our behalf. And when does he invite us in? When everything is good? No. In the midst when we're surrounded by our enemies. Because think about this. As we get to sit at the table, what still exists? Sin. Death. Satan. The world hates us. It will continue to hate you. The world will continue to be at war with you. No matter how you spend Christianity or how palatable you try to make it, they will always be at odds between the Christian and the world. But Jesus says, 
and the psalmist looked forward to, he doesn't just prepare a table when the war is over. He prepares a table in the midst of it. And we can come in, and we can sit, and we can eat, and we can be refreshed, and we can be nourished as we feast on the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, as we are reminded of how penalty has been paid for, our guilt and shame has been removed, our enemy has been defeated, and one day our enemy will be destroyed. Think about the hope that you have as you come to this table, as the Lord has prepared a table for you in the midst of your enemies, and what is on this table is the Lord himself, his body given to you, his blood shed for you. So when you find yourself overwhelmed, when you find yourself defeated, when you find yourself going through the valleys, the Lord says, come and sit at my table. Come and feast on me. And think about what does a table do? What does a table provide? It nourishes, calls a time out. It makes us look at the reality and appreciate who prepared it and what was prepared. And who prepared it? The Lord himself. And what was prepared? the Lord himself. And what is the invitation? Come and feast. Be encouraged. Be nourished. As war is waging, know our enemy has been defeated. And one day he will come back and completely destroy and annihilate our enemy. But in the meantime, we fight the good fight. We run the race with endurance. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We throw off the sin that entangles us. And we are reminded that he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. He knows us and we know him. And he will never abandon us. Surely goodness and faith will be with us who's that goodness and faithfulness the Lord himself and so as we get ready to distribute these elements meditate on these wonderful truths and the assurance that you have and if you are not a believer and you are outside of the family I am begging you you cannot save yourself you are enslaved. You need a shepherd that can call you and lead you. And he is a good shepherd. Surrender your life. Die to self and follow him. Let's distribute these elements. Let me pray for us. We'll distribute it. Lord, thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Thank you that you have laid down your life for us and that you know us. And we know you. You call us by name. You prepare a table for us in the midst of our enemies as you refresh us and satisfy us. We thank you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did everybody receive the elements? Think about this, this imagery. You're tired of running. You're tired of fighting. 
you want to give up? You want to give in? You feel like everything is for nothing because every time you take a step forward, it feels like you take two steps back. And just when you're about to give up, you see this table and Jesus standing by. But what he does not do is he doesn't give you a pep talk. He doesn't say, you're doing a good job. Keep on running. The race is almost over. It will be all worth it at the end. He doesn't do that. But what does he do? He gives himself to you. And he says, this is my body. Eat it in remembrance of me. And you take it and you eat it. And then he gives you the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood that was shed for you. The new covenant that you have in me. Drink it in remembrance of me. And you take it and you drink it. And if you think about this imagery, who is Jesus pointing you to? Not to you, but to himself. Why can you run this race? Why can you endure? Why can you not give up? Because he's given himself to you. Be refreshed by him. Rest in him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have laid down your life for us. Thank you that you meet us where we are. You do not give us false hope in ourselves, but you give us the ultimate hope that is you. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our life circumstances to fix our eyes on you, to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us that you are our good shepherd, that you know us and we know you, and that you've laid down your life for us. And it's because of you that we can endure. For you are in us and we are in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And may that truth become a reality. May we experience that truth that we are united with Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship the Lord?